0: Father Robert Kennedy, you yes. are an American Jesuit yes. and you are also a Zen Buddhist teacher, you're a Roshi. Yes. Can you tell yes. me how that came to pass?
1: Well, with the Jesuits, I, this was long before Vatican II when I was very young. and you know, I went to a Jesuit school and was swept up into the spirit of the times when young people went into religious life and I joined the Jesuits. And uh, then after studies, I volunteered for Japan. They were asking for volunteers, so I said I volunteer, and that was it. (laughs) I went to Japan, and I was a very young 25 at that time. I entered when I was 18, and uh, so that's how it it happened. They just asked for volunteers, and I went.
0: Yeah, but you didn't have to become a Buddhist. They didn't send you there to become a Buddhist.
1: (laughs) Well, I didn't intend to do that at all. In fact, when I first went to Japan, I uh, knew nothing of the Buddhists. And uh, I was so tied up learning the language and teaching and doing theology and getting ordained over there that I had no time for it. But when I came back to the States for graduate studies, I had a, a terrific experience that I was really unprepared for. And uh, that made me reach back to the Buddhist that I had ignored all those years. And I don't know why I did that. I can't explain it. But I started sitting which I knew they did. And one thing led to another, I kept at it, and then people wanted to sit with me. So gradually there was a group of us. And then in my first sabbatical from St. Peter's uh, College, which I was teaching, I went back to Japan to try to uh, have a deeper understanding of Buddhism. And the Jesuits there introduced me to Yamato Roshi, who I had a wonderful experience with him and then I just kept at it. And I came back to the States. I studied with Mayazumi Roshi in Los Angeles, and then Glassman Roshi in New York. And Glassman Roshi was the one that made me his Zen teacher. Okay. I think this is a tremendous thing in Buddhism, that uh, they could make a non-Buddhist one of their teachers. They have a saying that Buddhism must leave Buddhism itself to enter the field of blessing. And that the Buddhists are quite ready to drop the Buddhist aspect of their lives, and wherever the truth takes them, there's nothing they have to defend or hold on to. And I thought that was so tremendous, you know, that uh, there's nothing like it that I know in the world Beside that willing to drop their own tradition wherever the truth leads them. So uh, finally I finally, well, I became a teacher myself which surprised me. I never thought I'd do that because I was Catholic, but then the Buddhists pushed that aside and said, of course, you can do it. And I've been doing it ever since.
0: And did the Catholic put it aside? I mean, how did your Jesuit superiors react to this development? Were they supportive of you? And did it fit into your Jesuit spirituality and life?
1: Well, there's a couple of questions there. Yeah. The first was the uh, the Jesuits, of course, were completely for this. The Holy Father has urged us to do interfaith work, and uh, the Jesuits, of course, support this from the very beginning. We were doing interfaith work uh, from the time of the, you know, Xavier in the 16th century who went to Japan. So it was a, a natural fit. It's as Catholic as apple pie. Uh, there's no. Uh, Run around the church or anything like that. you know it's a, this is Catholic work and Jesuit work. I'm get, happy. it's a gift to be part of it.
0: Explain that to me. It's as Catholic as apple pie because even and particularly in your own country, if there are many who think that anything Buddhist or meditative or things like that is is an absolute anathema to the and a threat and assault upon the Catholic faith.
1: Well, it's not for everybody. It's not that everyone has to be involved in interfaith work. But the Church is always reaching out to others. From the time of the apostles, they went out and sought people out and tried to uh, explain the reality of Jesus in their lives. What is new since Vatican II is that the Church is not going out to, uh, just to teach others and certainly not to condemn them or argue with them but to appreciate them, to appreciate how God's grace operates in people who could not possibly know Jesus, and to see the, the great good that they have done in the world. So it's not converting people even. Uh, the Holy Father said, for example, we should not try to convert the Jews. That, uh, so we're not trying to convert people, actually, but to understand the miracle of God's grace in the world. And profit from it. The Church has much to learn, of course. We're not just teaching, but uh, uh, learning also.
0: But what if somebody said back to you, but they converted you because you be- they didn't become a Jesuit priest, but you became a Zen Buddhist teacher? <laughs>
1: That's a good point. Well, we go the extra step. Uh, if they're not, uh, no, they are not going to become Catholic. The Jews are not going to become Catholic. The Muslims, most likely, are not—not not in any numbers—are they going to be Catholic? And neither are the Japanese or the Buddhists. Uh, we're not trying to do the impossible to twist their minds around and pull them out of their own tradition. We're taking the extra step of becoming all things to all people. And uh, what they do is their business. You know, we have our vocation to go. And teach and learn before we teach, like learning the language, (laughs) which is always a good place to start, and learning their customs, and uh, becoming one with them. In the example of Matteo Ricci, you know, who became uh, Chinese for the Chinese.
0: And when you uh, started, is it? I don't want to pry, but you know that experience that you said you had. Are you prepared to talk about that?
1: Completely unexpected. I can. to put it into words, it was an experience of the randomness of the world, that uh, there is no order, really, in the world that we un- understand as human beings. Each moment is entirely new, as the physicists never tire of telling us, there is no real causality in the world. Each moment is a, a new event, a new creation, more or less. and. Uh, I experienced that very deeply, not that things are impermanent, but that the randomness of things was what, uh, what struck me so deeply. And it wasn't anything see, I didn't know intellectually. I, if you asked me, is the world random, I might have said yes, but this was a very different experience. And everything that I've learned since then has just been a corollary of that, really. It's a spin-off of that, uh, that first experience. But nothing prepared me for, I had no idea. In fact, I was driving a car when it happened <laughs> I, and, uh, that changed my life that 's what really an insight is it 's a powerful experience, not just an intellectual insight, but a powerful experience that is life changing and life giving and uh, sent me off in a different direction
0: and that direction then was, as you said, back to the Buddhism that you 'd encountered in Japan right. What was it in that that spoke to that experience of randomness?
1: Well, Buddhism is vast, of course. It's, a, like we say, Christianity. There are hundreds of different denominations of Christianity, and so too in Buddhism there are hundreds of different denominations. You know, And Zen is just one of them It is a practical way invented by the Chinese or put together by the Chinese to say, how do you do it? All this theory, how do you do it practically? And that's what Zen is. It does it the Chinese uh, contribution to the religious world, you know. So Buddhism is different in each country. I, you sent, the Jesuits sent me to Japan and I grew where I was planted. That's the language that I had painfully learned to some extent. And uh, so my teachers were Japanese and I learned that tradition. The Chinese then is the same, but yet quite different. You know, it's the same words, but expressed very differently. So too in Korea, in Taiwan in uh, in Thailand Buddhism is quite different, you know. So that's I was sent to Japan. That's where I, I I grew. If the Jesuits sent me to India, I suppose with my temperament and disposition, I'd be doing yoga, <laughs> you know. So it was the accident really of going to Japan that made me develop a Japanese Buddhism.
0: And how did did it speak to your experience? in a way that seemed to satisfy it, in a way that, say, your training in Ignatian, formation in Ignatian spirituality didn't satisfy that experience of randomness?
1: Well, the spiritual exercises satisfied me when I first made them, and we made them every year, you know, for several years before I I uh, encountered Buddhism. And Zen uh, had a different exp- human experience. It answered different questions, it asked different questions and gave uh, different answers. It didn't contradict the exercises of the Saint Ignatius, but I thought it, it uh, continued the exercises. Ignatius ends the exercises in contemplation. And Zen is about contemplation, about a silent attention, appreciation of things, not just intellectually, so, but uh, humanly, emotionally, intuitively. So I thought it was a continuation of the exercises, not a replacement of them.
0: Can you say a wee bit more to me about that continuation, about that quality of attention maybe and contemplation that, that speaks to where Ignatius leads us and where our own Christianity leads us?
1: Well, Zen tries to move not against the intellect but beyond it. It tries to silence the thinking mind, the inquisitive mind, it constantly asks questions, and it just says to be attentive, be awake and attentive, not to daydream, not to indulge in repetitious thoughts, uh, as they say, gossiping with the dead, but to come whole and complete into the present moment, fresh. When God defines God's self in the book of Revelations, he says, Behold, I make all things new. And the physicists are saying that you know that each moment is entirely new, and uh, where well, one moment replaces the next moment, it's not caused by previous moment. And this quiet attention allows the mind to develop. It prepares the mind for a deeper insight, a, deep, a deeper awareness. And it must be experienced. It's not just to be talked about. The Buddhists invite us to sit with them and grow with them. The insight comes in that area of an intuitive grasp of things, not an intellectual understanding of more truths, perhaps a deeper appreciation of, of one truth. And that touched me deeply, and I can't say why, it's just my nature. I, uh, other Jesuits saw it and didn't think much of it. You know, they moved on to other things. But I found a home there. And then I had a wonderful teacher in Yamada Roshi, because it's all from learning from the teacher And he was a wonderful man, he was a layman, a father and a grandfather. He had no vows, there were no perpetual vows in Buddhism. How could you have perpetual vows in a constantly changing world, you know? And uh, it was his personality, too. He said, I don't want to make you a Buddhist. I want to empty you in imitation of your Lord Jesus Christ who emptied himself. And that one experience, that teaching, opened everything to me, you know. I could accept the whole Buddhist uh, tradition and experience without denying anything, not denying my faith or my Jesuit life. It was uh, just a new way of looking at the world, which, by the way, corresponds to modern physics. The Dalai Lama said if modern physics and Buddhism disagreed, he would go with modern physics. The glory of Buddhism is that they hit upon this understanding of uh, no self and no causality, and but the world we see as a construction of our own minds, that they put this together without any help from modern science. You know, they just sat down and saw through things. and uh, It's a great help to the whole world.
0: You talk about the kenosis there, the, the self-emptying of, of right. Jesus Christ and that your teacher wanted you to have that. As a Jesuit, you are a contemplative inaction. Yes. And, I mean, I know Buddhism is not, nor is Christianity, about sitting around and saying, well, I'm stuck in the eternal now <laughs> and there's not much point if there's no causality in doing things. I mean, we have to right. live in a world where Like it or not, things do, even though physics may tell us one thing. If I hit my toe, it's sore, and I have to go and get a plaster, and this is the world we live in. So how do you relate the two of those?
1: Well, there's a wonderful Zen teaching that says we must pay attention to causality, even though, you know, on one level we see that uh, one thing does not simply cause another. We have to pay attention to it, and otherwise people get, get hurt, you know. So there's the the practical living in the world. And the Buddhists say also that we cannot stop with insight. We have to live in the world, that there really is no Zen without the precepts or the commandments of right living. Therefore, it's not a withdrawal in any sense. It just tries to have a deeper understanding of the world so that we're not repeating religious platitudes, but have a deeper grasp of ourselves and be a conduit for others to have a a deeper insight into life. In that sense, Buddhism is not a religion. It is a a very practical way of living. There is no transcendence in Buddhism. They say the Buddha came to an understanding that everything is conditioned. Nothing is unconditioned. Everything is conditioned in in this world. They don't go beyond this world. About God, they just say nothing. They have nothing to say. They just deal with human experience here and now. It's not about faith. Therefore, it doesn't contradict faith. It's just about uh, how you see the world. That's the question teachers ask a student. How do you see the world? Do you see it as something purely objective, or do you really see it as something that the mind, uh, to some extent, creates? We co-create our own world.
0: Say, as a Christian, if I were answering that, I I would say, well, I see the world through the pattern of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And it is a giving, an emptying, a suffering a dying and a rising again, and that that cyclical pattern seems to happen throughout most of life. That's the wave of my life. And it works in that sense, that that's how it seems to be. So how does Buddhism speak to that experience?
1: Well, the Buddhists would say, show me your resurrection. but Don't just talk about it or tell me what you believe. How has it changed your life? Uh, give me some example of it. They don't want to argue with the pros and cons of the possibility of supernatural grace. <laughs> I mean, they just say, let's see it. And it's a great challenge, you know, to stop talking about these religious things and to put it into action. They try to bring your faith out of the head down to your fingertips. How does, uh, when people look to us, they, look, they ask, how can we help them? You know, they don't want a religious argument, really. How can we practically be of service to the world? And in that sense, they were very close Buddhism must be taken out of the Zendo into the world. And my teacher Bernie Glassman in New York was wonderful in this aspect. He said, Many people love Zen in a quiet room by themselves. But they don't like to go out into the street with it, and he brought us out into the street. This is what we all one with the suffering of people. And that was a shock to a lot of people who, again, like the uh, artistic atmosphere of Isendo, you know. But they didn't like going out in the street, and uh, I didn't either. And but you know, my teacher went, I went with him, and uh, it's a different world. You see the police differently. You <laughs> You see shelters differently, you know. Can you
0: explain that?
1: Well, we couldn't bring money with us. We had to beg for money. So we had people be went to go into McDonald's and buy a cup of coffee and use the toilet, maybe. And, uh, I found that difficult. I had to laugh at myself that how much of my life was to avoid ever being in such a helpless experience, you know, and uh, enduring the looks of uh, contempt or disdain that people have, you know, standing there begging. And... Uh, So you learn a lot about yourself in such a circumstance. And Glasgow was great. He was right there with us, you know, down and dirty.
0: So it's not about total removal from the world into a bubble of meditation where nothing really has significance. That's right.
1: Zen is right living. And uh, that means go into the whole of the world, you know. Now many don't, many stay in the Zen, as many Catholics might want to just stay in church. But I mean, the the goal of both faiths is uh, to find life everywhere and participate in life as fully as we can. I love the uh, phrase of Karl Rahner when he said, Jesus was divine because he completely developed his humanity. And uh, I think both faiths, are about that, the developing a full humanity, not about a religious self that is isolated from the world. That would make no sense to Jesuits or to Zen Buddhists.
0: I'm reminded when you talked about that experience of going into McDonald's and having to look for a toilet or ask for a coffee. I've spoken to Jesuits who do a thing at the start of their Jesuit training called The Experiment, where they have to go around and they have to, Ignatius asked them to right. not have any money and they were to exactly. be, to beg and they weren't to say that they were Jesuit novices. A lot of them learned a lot from that experience. I suppose we forget it very easily as well. Who wants to be powerless or helpless? Um, I'm thinking of what you're speaking about and also the, the Christian mystic tradition, which nowadays there is much more interest in. But for hundreds of years, has been marginalized as a voice within Christianity. Do you think those mystics were giving voice to the kind of insights that then Buddhists were giving us and have given us in this interfaith dialogue?
1: I I think uh, it's a similar human experience. And I'm sure that uh, that they were very gifted. But the Zen experience is honored in Buddhism. The contemplative or the uh, attentive experience is honored in, in Buddhism. It's not marginalized in any way. I heard that when the Jesuits first returned to Japan, the Buddhists asked them, what do you do? How can you help us? And uh, the Jesuits said, well, we run schools and we sponsored different social works and so on. And the Japanese said, well, that's wonderful, but we have those things ourselves. Do you have anyone who is deeply insightful, anyone who can match our Buddhist uh, teachers? And I think the Jesuits realized then they had more work to do, you know, that uh, this was a tradition that clearly valued and developed uh, a tradition that was somewhat marginalized in the church.
0: I think in recent times there has been a revival of interest in your founder, St. Ignatius, as his own mysticism, that he wasn't just somebody who sent people out to get things done and that there were strains, deep strains, in his own spirituality.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, uh, it's wonderful to keep repeating the exercises, as, as many Jesuits do. At least for me, though, the Zen experience was new. And uh, it touched me deeply. And it was a very Jesuit thing to do, you know. It wasn't leaving the Jesuit tradition. It was, as I said, an extension of it. I felt very lucky to be to be part of it.
0: One of the things that's striking me, as you're speaking, that things maybe we can also learn from that, you know, you spoke at the start, the absolute freedom in the Buddhists, that they were quite happy to make you the best person you could be. They weren't interested in a,
1: a convert. Well, trying to convert. Me. No. There were many priests and nuns there in, in Kamakura with Yamada Roshi because he was a gracious person. He spoke uh, English and German. Many Japanese Zen teachers uh, were not anxious to work with foreigners. They didn't know other languages. And they, uh, But he was open to us, and there were many priests. Uh, Willigas Gesiego was one of them. Uh, Kathleen Riley uh, you know, became wonderful Zen teachers and came out of that tradition of Yamada Roshi. It was wonderful. The Buddhists have spent, you know, centuries helping people to grow in the contemplative life. There are hundreds of uh, what they call koans or public cases where a student is challenged to present his insight and to to see more clearly what the Buddhists mean by emptiness or non-self or whatever. Literally hundreds of these. And day after day you work with the teacher. He tries to refine your insight and correct it and develop it doesn't happen so often in the church at least as I understand my experience in the church and I thought that was wonderful to meet people who took this so seriously and developed it into a fine art to move the human spirit along to I I won't say a greater depth, but moved it along well, yeah.
0: <laughs> And also the notion of tradition I mean this is a sort of a alle- toxic word or allergic word at the moment within Catholicism that what People regard as if there's any change that tradition is being threatened, and the attitude that they had, as you said at the beginning, to tradition was it's not relevant in that way. It's, it's it doesn't mean it's meaningless in a certain way.
1: Yes, yes, it is, and that's why Catholicism and Buddhism are different. They, they work in the same area of human development, and, uh, but they are different human expressions, and I think that's wonderful too. That uh, we're not learning the same thing in just a different language. It's the human spirit growing in a different way. And the Church has to always be learning, I think. It doesn't mean accepting everything. It, we always have to learn with discretion. But it's an opportunity to take a big step and see see a different type of teaching and learning. And to respect Buddhism. It's the greatness of its uh, work in bringing peace and uh, wisdom uh, to Asia, you know, outside of India. Buddhism is the major religion of of Asia, and Jesuits especially should be uh, interested in this. When uh, Father Nicholas, the former Jesuit general, came to New York, he was speaking to Jesuits at Fordham University, and I remember he said that he understands that many Jesuits today are studying Islam, and he understands that, why we are, but he said it's the Buddhists that ask the real questions. He said two especially, the first was, how do you know so much about God? And the second question is, who is it who knows so much about God? So the first question was one of uh, knowledge. How do you know what you're talking about? And the second question is identity. Who are you that claims to know this, that? And he said this was especially Jesuit work, that our life and training prepared us to do this, where other priests perhaps had different training and different work to do. And I thought that was really wonderful. You know, it was basically quite knowledge and identity. That's where Buddhism challenges us. It's not arguing about ceremonies or some theory things. How do you know so much? And who is it who knows so much? And uh, Buddhism swims in that uh, in that world.
0: You know, earlier you said to me that when I talked about the Paschal Mystery and you said the Buddhists would say, show me that. Yes. And So what if I said, well... Um, I know somebody very close to me who was in the pits of addiction with alcoholism and really would have said was in hell, lost her family, lost everything and totally unfree. And then she pulled her life together through a massive experience of... Mm that. Even in that depth, somehow she was worth or loved by something. And... Became an addiction counselor, mm-hmm. helping other people. Now that to me is a kind of the path, and then goes on with life up down that cycle. So if I gave that example back, what would they say?
1: Wonderful, that's wonderful that uh, that this happened. You know, these traditions cannot really be compared. Sometimes they, we have a kind of comparative religion; you compare one to the other, but they really are very different. And I think that that's what makes it wonderful. We're confronted with something new in that sense. It's not just another form of Christianity. And with modern physics, they say the individual, you know, is not really what it's all about. (laughs) And uh, they have no hope for heaven or eternal life. I remember once uh, a Buddha saying, uh, Do you live a good life because you hope to go to heaven and get a reward? You know, for them, that's rather childish thinking. For them, you know, they, isn't it enough? They say to be a human being, to be a, a complete man or woman, isn't that uh, enough of a reward for you? So they sidestep things that are very precious to us in our Catholic tradition. So it is a challenge. It is also a gift. Sometimes it is a breath of fresh air. Uh, you're made to rethink your own faith.
0: And you've been here this last few days with a group of 25 people um, who have been really being taught by you in contemplation, is that right? Can you just tell me what you've been doing and how did that work? And were they Catholics as well or Buddhists or a mixture or did you care or no?
1: No, it's, it's not my business what their faith is unless they tell me that it's a problem in one way or the other. It's just human growth. And each one grows according to their own gift and their own history and their own uh, tradition and strengths and weaknesses. And the Zen teacher is just trying to help them take another step that they really want to take in their own heart. There's no trying to twist them or turn them into being something else. You know, uh, What is it you want to be? And uh, is there any way I can help you? And I love that too. It's uh, no... Pulling at them to be something else. So I don't know what their faith was. I suppose many of them were Catholic in one form or another, you know. And, uh, some were Protestant in the States, many of them are Jewish. And we work together in many social works, social endeavors that we do. With Glassman, it was renovating apartment houses for the poor and things like that. Founding or renovating an abandoned convent as a hospice for AIDS patients and people of all faiths work together on that. In working, we were one. If we had to start talking theology, it would be scattered. Everybody would have a different uh, different point of view. It's the doing that brought us together.
0: And one of the key parts of being able to do that doing is to be able to quiet the mind in silence as well. Yes, is that right?
1: Yes, we spend hours together sitting, but we're not left alone. The teacher is with us, and uh, we can see the teacher as often as we wish. You know, sometimes in a retreat, two or three times a day, you can go in, and uh, I found them unfailingly helpful. The different teachers that I worked with, they were all gifted uh, people, and they uh, helped me to be myself. They weren't trying to make me a Buddhist, as I said, or anything like that. I think Yamato Roshi had a lot to do with my remaining a Jesuit and remaining a priest. And I can't explain that, you know, know, logically. He gave me a a new way of being Catholic, a new way of being a Jesuit. And uh, I love the old man.
0: Thank you very much indeed. It was a pleasure talking to you. you.